Here we go, that's a bit clearer. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's my privilege to be able to introduce to you my dear friend, Ethel Fugard. It's more of a privilege, possibly because he, precisely because he needs no introduction. So just uh, instead of that, I'd just like to tell you maybe a few things you don't know. Um, as most of you do know, Ethel turned 80 last year, and he celebrated that year with two performances of his plays off-Broadway in the Signature Theatre that he directed himself. Road to Mecca also played on Broadway, and he was sort of an advisor to the project. So he's had a very busy year, came back to Stellenbosch last year, September, and shortly thereafter began rehearsals for Die Laste Karikigraf, which also many of you may have seen. So um, another thing that you might not know is that for the past two years, 2010, no, 11 and 12, Athel has been a fellow at STIAS, the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study. And uh, I know he's sometimes felt a bit like a fish out of water with all the, you know, academic sort of <laughs> things around him. But I know he also learned a lot from it. And somewhere down the line, he really developed a very sort of warm and close relationship to Stellenbosch. And he's had marvelous encounters in this town. Sort of uh, one I'd like to share with you was just recently, he was sitting on a park bench in front of the city hall. You know, just sort of smoking his pipe and talking to a guy who was drinking tea out of a tin presumably homeless, or certainly not, you know, someone who had a posh house in Stellenbosch. And while he was sitting there, the deputy mayor of the town walked up and said, you know, excuse me, are you Ethel Fugard? So to make a long story short, the three of them ended up sitting together on the park bench, just whiling away the morning. And I think maybe that's one of the things that has made Ethel sort of special in his life, the way he manages to unite people, get people to sit together on park benches. So when Melt first approached Ethel to do something for the Wurtfies, he initially kind of planned on, you know, taking something out of the drawer and, you know, blowing the dust off it and running it up the flagpole to see if anyone salutes, you know. And as time went on, he sort of found so many things in Stellenbosch that were worth writing about that he's actually written a brand new story for the 2013 Stellenbosch Wurtfies. And just before I finally hand over to him, I would just like to mention that this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we've got another Stellenbosch Wurtfies appearance, and uh, many men will be joining Ethel in conversation. 4 o'clock in the book tent, and we'd like you all to join us for that if possible. Also, I would kindly like to ask uh, that you please do not intercept Ethel after the performance, as 1 o'clock we've got to be in the Plataon Café for an interview with Aris Gier. And it's, it's not a lot of time to get from here to there. And we also hope that you join us for that. And if you can't, just tune in your, to your radio on Ereschi in the car, and please enjoy. Thank you much, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Ethel Fugard. I would just like, <clears throat> before I actually start, uh, to pick up on one name that Paula mentioned in her introduction, and that is the name of Milt, Milt Maybach, because... Um, He's the face of word fierce as far as I'm concerned. And I, my debt of gratitude uh, to him for this opportunity and for the next opportunity in which I'll be in conversation with my long, long and very dear friend, Manny Manum. Um, you know, those occasions would, would certainly not have happened had it not been for Melt. So if you're around anywhere, Melt, I just want to acknowledge my debt of gratitude to you in front of an audience. Now, 
I've written a short story for this uh, festival, and it came out of an incident here in Stellenbosch, so it's very appropriate, I believe, to this occasion. Uh, I just would also like to say that in talking about it as a short story, I must just add it is a short, short story. And for that reason, <clears throat> I've sort of put down a few thoughts as a preamble to the reading of the story, which I think sets something of its context. So, here we go. If you were to take a look at South Africa's cultural calendar for the last few years, you couldn't be blamed if you described that us as a nation addicted to festivals. I think we are, and the reason for that is a very impressive one. In spite of this distur the, the disturbing and shocking headlines that look like banners of impending disaster on the front pages of our newspapers every day now, there is in our hearts a need to celebrate. More importantly, a reason to celebrate. Although our politicians sometimes seem hell-bent on destroying our fledgling democracy, there is still hope in all our hearts, certainly mine. So whenever we can, another festival pops up so that we can sing and dance, so that we can celebrate the new and decent world we are trying and often succeeding in creating. Of all the festivals, this one, Wurtfius, 2013, is the one that I truly feel passionate about and with which I identify very strongly. No surprises there. I am a writer, and as such, the spoken and the written word is my own personal reason for opening my eyes each day with hope and excitement in my heart. This rock-bottom faith of mine was challenged and tested in one of the most critical periods in this country's history, the 1980s. It was, in the, it was then when it looked as if the prophets of doom were right in saying that we were a nation headed for the bloodbath. Violent action seemed to be the only possible solution. Friends of mine were making bombs and detonating them. Many of them were killed. Others were imprisoned on Robben Island. And while all this was going on, I was sitting safely at home putting words on paper. There was one, quest there was one question that haunted me. Was putting words down on paper a valid response to the situation we all found ourselves in? Was writing a significant form of action? I confronted these issues in a play of mine called My Children, My Africa. Please bear with me while I quote from that play. The scene is one in which an elderly schoolteacher, my Mr. M, as he is called in the play, and his favorite and very bright young pupil, Tommy Imbakwana, <clears throat> are confronting each other about the presence of political agitators in the black township where they live and the boycott of classes which the pupils are, very, are organizing. Mr. M speaks. Oh, I see, 
You have got other teachers now, have you? The young boy answers, Yes. Yours were lessons in whispering. There are men now who are teaching us to shout. Those little tricks and jokes of yours in the classroom liberated nothing. The struggle doesn't need the big English words you taught me how to spell, Mr. M. Mr. M says, Be careful, Tommy. Be careful. Be careful. Don't scorn words. They are sacred, magical. Yes, they are. Do you know that without words, a man can't think? Yes, it's true. Take that thought back with you as a present from the despised Mr. M and share it with the comrades. Tell them the difference between a man and an animal is that a man thinks, and he thinks with words. If the struggle needs weapons, Tommy, give it words. Stones and petrol bombs can't get inside those armored cars. Words can. Words can do something even more devastating than that. They can get inside the heads of those inside those armored cars. I speak to you like this because if I have faith in anything, it is faith in the power of words. In another scene in the play, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. M has in one hand a stone which has just come crashing through a window in the classroom thrown by one of the protesting students outside, all of whom have been boycotting classes. And in the other hand, he holds his most precious possession, his cherished pocket English dictionary. He speaks. <clears throat> you know something interesting, Tommy? If you put these two on a scale, I think you would find that they weighed just about the same. But in this hand, and he holds up the dictionary, in this hand, I am holding the whole English language. The stone which he holds in the other hand is just one word in that language. It's true. All that wonderful poetry that you and Isabel try to cram into your beautiful heads in here, in this dictionary. 26 letters, 60,000 words. The greatest souls the world has ever known were able to open the floodgates of their ecstasy, their despair, their joy with the words in this little book. And then he offers them to Tommy and he says, Aren't you tempted? Which one do you want? The offering I bring you tonight, or this afternoon, <laughs> is a short sketch called Cupcake Candles. They are not a fanciful creation of my tired and aging imagination. Here is one. I'll even light it for you. 
Can you all see it? Good. Thanks, Paula. Some of you might also have bought one, as I did while I was enjoying a meal in one of Stellenbosch's excellent restaurants. Yes, this small offering I bring you this afternoon is specifically a Stellenbosch story. And because it is also very short, I thought it would, I would tell you something about my craft as a storyteller in putting together what I'm going to read to you. Because I love it, this business of using words to try and be a good witness to the life of another human being. I am as proud of that craft as a carpenter would be when he fashions a good wooden table. And what is more, I also have tools. My equivalents of the chisels, planes and saws my fellow craftsmen uses in making that table. And I also try to make my finished product as useful to others as he does. One of my most essential tools is my insatiable desire to follow people home and so enter into their lives. I am in fact confessing to being that rather unpleasant character, a stalker. <laughs> the only thing I can say in my defense is that I am a virtual stalker. I do so in my imagination. This evil habit of mine has generated some of the work of which I am now most proud. All of 50 years ago, I stopped my car one night at a red traffic light in the little village of Swartkops on the outskirts of Port Elizabeth, and for a few magical seconds, a man and a woman the latter, the woman, loaded up with what looked like a pile of rubbish on her head, holding a dog at the end of a piece of rope trailing behind her. The man walking in front with a sack of empty beer and wine bottles slung over one shoulder. I knew they were that because I could hear the clink of the empty bottles through my open window. This sad little midnight procession crossed in front of me in the car's headlights. I am a fisherman, so it wasn't very really difficult to realize that the Swatkorps River was just a few blocks away, and my guess was that they were both bait diggers. The lights turned to green eventually, and while I drove away, my imagination started following them to the Swatkorps River, where they would be sitting, shivering in an improvised shelter, waiting for the next day's light and low tides so that they could dig up a kaneki of mud prawns, sell it to a fisherman, and so survive another day of their destitute lives. I put a full stop, about a year later, I put a full stop to the last stage direction of a play called Busman and Lena. That is what happened to me one night here in Stellenbosch as I sat enjoying a plate of prawns piri-piri at a table outside the Weinhaus. 
I was enjoying my food so much that I missed the chance of seeing the young woman properly until my partner drew my attention to her. She had approached our table wordlessly, held out her tray of candles, and when there was, seemed to be obviously no chance of selling one, turned around and walked away. Feeling guilty about my unintentioned indifference to her, I urged my partner to act on her impulse and run after her and buy a candle. It is that one. The, sorry, the air conditioning has turned it out. <clears throat> this she did, and this is the candle that she bought. This she did, and this is the candle she bought. There were two further encounters with her, at the end of which we ended up with three candles. All of them the same, all of them cupcake candles. By that time, I had noticed that she was a tall young woman, heavily pregnant, and that she walked around the streets of Stellenbosch with a quiet dignity and pride, hawking her candles. It was after the third encounter with her that it struck me how movingly she epitomized the struggle, the survival struggle that so many young South Africans are dealing with in our new South Africa. It was on that occasion that I stalked her back home. The other tool, very important tool in my, in my storyteller's toolbox, is asking questions. My virtual stalking would add up to nothing without them. I obviously can't speak for any other writer because there are so many ways of getting the story down on paper as there are writers. But in my case, I spend as much time asking and trying to answer questions as I spend on writing. It is these questions that give me those seemingly trivial specifics, those gritty little details that I relish so much in telling a story. So having decided there was the potential for a short story in these cupcake candles, I had to decide who and what was my fictional lady going to be. I must stress the word fictional, because out of respect for the real lady's name, it must be clear that my story is not hers. All I in fact know about her story, apart from the fact that she was pregnant, is one small piece of information which I've had the temerity to use right at the end of my story and which in fact ends it. I began my recall of the brief encounters I had with her. One memory was very striking and that was the loose-limbed freedom with which she walked from the restaurants where she had bought, where we had bought our third cupcake. It reminded me of another young woman I knew very well, who also walks through life with a sense of genuine physical freedom, and who in conversation reveals that same freedom in her incisive thinking and, being young, turbulent emotional life. Grafting these qualities onto my still unformed cupcake lady, 
gave me my first and lasting sense of her individual identity and personality. Once I had that, the other questions, the other questions that needed answers before I could start writing came without any difficulty. Was there someone else in her life as she walked home and was another day nearer the moment when her child would be born? Yes, of course. But who? Husband? Partner? Father or mother? A sibling, possibly? I chose mother. I know two mothers very well. One generous, loving, and totally supportive of the young life she had given birth to. The other, embittered by misfortune, critical of everyone and everything, living out her last years with a grim determination not to die before those who had hurt her had also died. That was her one remaining ambition, to be the sole survivor of the family drama in which she had been the victim. I chose her as the presence in the small flat that my lady was walking home to. With those two choices made, all of the other smaller questions and issues were dealt with very easily, <clears throat> and I was ready to start writing the first draft of my short story. And here it is. I've got to watch the time. Okay. <clears throat> Cupcake candles. The flush of happiness and pride at having only one candle left out of the twelve she had had in a tray at the start of the evening had settled down into a comforting warmth by the time she quietly unlocked the front door and entered the small apartment. She knew that her mother would already be in bed and hopefully fast asleep. She wasn't going to wake her up knowing full well that she would have been told once again that her now swollen belly and obvious pregnancy was... Sorry, seemed to have gone adrift here. Uh, pregnancy, that the only reason for that why she had sold more candles that evening than ever before was that they felt pity on you. She knew that pity was the one thing a daughter didn't need and in fact despised. But that did nothing to change the mood of the young woman. All that mattered was that tomorrow she would be making another deposit in the bank account she had opened after her first night of hawking candles in the restaurants in the center of town. She put a bundle of notes and coins from her pocket on the table and counted them. Eleven candles at twenty rand each added up to two hundred and twenty rand. She had counted two hundred and ten. The missing ten rand did not bother her. She knew where it had gone. She also knew that nine months earlier, 
when she hadn't yet known that a new life had started to grow inside her. A moment like this would have been one to pour out the half glass of Tussenberg left in the table, left on the table, and light a cigarette. Now she knew better. So instead it was a mug of still hot tea from the thermos flask her mother had left for her before going to bed. It was after her third sip of the tea that she surprised herself for the second time that evening by surrendering to a sudden impulse. She picked up the box of matches lying on the table and lit the remaining candle that she had carried home so proudly. She then switched off the light. At 20 rand a candle, it was an extravagant gesture, but she felt entitled to it. After all, she hadn't had an extravagant impulse for all of nine months now, and she had always so loved yielding to them without reckoning of the cost or consequences. She stared lovingly at the little flame on top of the wax candle. They really were beautiful. Every second of their soft golden light surely worth every cent of the twenty rand she charged. Her pride in her creation had been challenged a few days earlier when she had walked into a gift shop hoping that they would be just as admiring of her creation and stock a batch of them. She chose a moment when there were no customers in the shop. It started off well enough. The elderly lady behind the counter had unquestionably admired them. But then, with one of her beautiful candles in her hand, she had asked, What scent do they have? The look of confusion on the young woman's face had not needed words. You mean they don't have any scent? But my dear, gift candles always have a scent. She was right. Going to the shelf where all the gift candles were on display, she read the labels. Vanilla, lavender, Mexican rose. There was even one ugly fat one that not only gave off the scent of burning cedar wood, but also made crackling noises like a cozy fire in the grate. The young woman left the shop with the three candles she had brought with her, all of them with the little wicks sticking out of dollops of bright-colored wax right on top. She had melted down ordinary coloring-in-book crayons to achieve that. But now, how do you give them scent? Her first impulse was to ignore the remark that all gift candles must have scent. Unfortunately, rising to challenges was as much a part of her nature as was surrendering to extravagant impulses. Here now was the next challenge. And she decided she would rise to it the next day with a visit to the women's section in cliques to see what they had in the way of perfumes that she could possibly mix with the molten wax. 
She poured herself another cup of tea and then found the place in the cupboard where her mother had hidden the sugar. She heard her mother's voice again. It's not good for the baby. After two spoonfuls of sugar, she once again settled down at the table. The candle was still burning, its flame now floating at the bottom of a little well of molten wax. Behind her on the stove, her mother had laid out all that was needed for another batch. A pot for melting down the three long white household candles, those in the blue packets, every supermarket has them, a pair of scissors for snipping their long wicks <coughs> into lengths suitable for her waxen creations, and of course the cupcake baking tray, now scrubbed and cleaned. Still staring at the burning candle, she tried once again to make sense of it all. The candles, the swollen belly, the baby inside her already impatient to be out, judging from the vigor of the kicks she was now living with regularly. And then her mother, bitter and defeated. Why and what? And where had it all begun? Before she was born? when she too was still just a small new life in her mother's womb and her father abandoned them and disappeared and never returned? Was he maybe one of those sad white men who now stand on street corners holding up a piece of cardboard with a desperate plea for a few rands to feed wife and child? How many other abandoned wives and children were there? struggling to survive in the new South Africa? Did she have half-brothers and sisters out there who were also rising to or failing to rise to the survival challenges facing them? Only that very evening, when she paused briefly outside the last of the restaurants she was going to visit and straightened up the wicks of the last four candles she had left, an elderly Um had greeted her. He had been standing nearby trying to win a few rand as a car guard. Naan, doctor. Naan, Um. Wat verkoop jy? Cupcake candles, Um. He looked at her tray and nodded. Hoeveel kost hulle? Twintig rand, Um. He shook his head with a little laugh. <laughs> I get never land genoeg verdien om selfs net een te koop. Nee. All she could say was, jammer oom. She then went inside the restaurant and sold three, leaving her with the one she was now staring at. When she left the restaurant a few minutes later, he was still there. They greeted each other again. Is he it's for koop? Ja, oom. Drie van my kerse. So moet het wees. En oom? Nog net a paar rand in my sak. Ek dink my eie mense kry skaam vir my. Maar wat helpt het om te klaar? Of te heil? 
ons moet maar net aanvaar, het is nou ons beurt om zwaar te krijgen. Shaking his head, he gave a bitter little laugh, jammer my kind. Moet niet hoop verloor nie oom, sê de young woman, die nacht is nog niet voorbij nie, daar staan daarom nog een paar klompkaragier, een naandwoom, naandmekend. She had already taken quite a few steps back down Dorf Street, when, when one of those sudden impulses she was trying so hard to control seized her again. She surrendered and went back to the old man and pressed a tin rand note in his hand. <clears throat> this time the moment had not needed any polite words. But was that maybe why she had done it? Was he possibly the father that had walked out on them? She closed her eyes and tried to remember the old car god's face. But all she could remember seeing was sadness and, and a resignation bordering on defeat. No, that day when a pregnant mother had found herself alone in the world wasn't the moment that answered those urgent little questions about her own life. So maybe it was that night at the jaw when she got so drunk she didn't know or more tr truthfully didn't care about what she was doing and had had unprotected sex with a man she hardly knew or cared about. What would she say to her daughter when one day she asks her who her daddy was? She knew the man's name, but when she tried to find him, she was told that he had moved to Johannesburg. She had made two attempts to try and track him down up there, but when they were more all unsuccessful, she had given up the search and started to think seriously about her distraught mother's suggestion that she either find a nice man and get married quickly, or failing that, have an abortion. She closed her eyes and spoke the two words which she now either thought or spoke aloud at least a hundred times each day, trying to will her body into delivering what she wanted, what she needed. My daughter, my daughter, my daughter. Shifting the emphasis between the two words each time, it had become her mantra of hope. She was so desperate for the new life inside her to be a girl that she actively wished that young as she was, her religious skepticism always stopped her from praying for help. Yes, that is what she was hoping for and would have prayed for if there had been something to believe in. A daughter who she would love and look after and teach how to avoid all the mistakes she had made. She would not force her onto her knees as her mother had done to her and make her pray to a God 
who remain steadfastly indifferent to their prayers and pleas to send her father back to them. She would teach her to believe in herself. A few seconds later, when the little stranger inside her gave a few kicks in, she spoke aloud and once again with fierce conviction, my daughter, my daughter. She opened her eyes. No. That drunken jaw wasn't the moment that explained everything. It had all started a few weeks after that jaw, when, with a mother's protests ringing in her ears, she had walked out of the abortion doctor's waiting room. That is when my life stopped being the result of other people's mistakes and I made it my own. That is when it became my own. But it hadn't been easy. That very night had also been the first of many long, lonely nights when she sat helplessly in the kitchen with the terribly real questions her mother had left her with before going into the bedroom to lie in the dark and cry, always loud enough for her daughter to hear, helpless and lonely, until she saw the rusty old cupcake baking tray that they had found in the oven when they moved into the flat, standing then in a corner next to the stove, because out of that, out of nowhere, the idea of cupcake candles had come to her. Now scrubbed and clean, it was there behind her, waiting for another batch of waxen cupcake candles. My daughter, my daughter. There still remained the question of her name. Her mother's contribution had been a list of mothers and sisters in the family tree, all of which she had rejected. When her exasperated mother pressed her for her preferences, preferences all she could say was that it hadn't come to her yet, but that it would. But at that moment, she didn't have enough energy to start on yet another list of possible names because she was tired, tired, tired. She lowered her head onto her arms on the table and slept. A few hours later, when the candle had already burnt itself out, she finally woke up and opened her eyes. The room was filling slowly with the first light of a new day. The intermittent and muffled sounds of the city also stirring into life were filtering into the room. A distant door slam in the block of flats. A voice calling. A car starting up in the parking lot down below. And then suddenly, very loud and very near, her mother's alarm clock. It stopped abruptly. She waited. A few minutes later, her mother appeared in the doorway, a ghost in a white nightie. They stared at each other for a few seconds, 
both pairs of eyes still cobwebbed with sleep. Her mother spoke first, lifting the alarm clock for the daughter to see. It's time, six o'clock. She then looked vacantly at the stove. You haven't made any candles. A faint smile hovered on her daughter's lips. Dawn, she said. Her mother's voice hardened. Have you been out all night? Her daughter shook her head. The smile hovering on her lips widened into an unsullied expression of happiness. A new day. For heaven's sake, I know that, was the mother's sharp reply. Have you started drinking again? The smile on the young woman's lips remained unaffected by the rebuke. Her mother's gaze sharpened with suspicion. I found it, said the daughter. What? asked the mother. The young woman spoke with gentle conviction. Dawn, a new day. That is going to be her name. My baby is going to be called Dawn. The end. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You've been very patient with me. We've got five minutes. Paula, I'm going to allow one question. No? Anybody want to say anything, ask anything? No. That's it? Oh. <laughs> Bye, Donkey. Okay. Bye, Donkey Mensah.